I'm Sophia Davis-Vogel, and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 15-minute talk by Jason, then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where he will respond to some questions. You can submit questions using the box to the right-hand side of this video. You can also vote for your favorite questions to push them higher up the list. Jason Shoecraft is a Senior Research Manager at Rethink Priorities, where he investigates a number of topics, including invertebrate sentience, invertebrate welfare, ballot initiatives, and differences in capacity for welfare. He earned his PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas at Austin. Here's Jason. Today I want to explore why it's important to determine, as best we can, which creatures matter morally. So I'm going to focus mostly on non-human animals, because that's the area that's most salient today. But it's not hard to imagine a future in which we ask many of these same questions about artificial agents of various kinds. We know that other humans have inner lives, much like our own. Their expressions of joy and sorrow reflect genuine experiences, and these experiences merit our moral concern. And we can be reasonably confident that at least some non-human animals also have inner lives. Even if it's difficult to imagine what it's like to be a western lowland gorilla or a bottlenose dolphin, we can be relatively sure these animals are capable of experiencing their own pains and pleasures, and we should afford those experiences the moral interests they deserve. Of course, we shouldn't expect all living things to possess some sort of inner life. There may well be nothing it's like to be a bacterium. Understanding where the line lies between those creatures who consciously experience the world and those who do not is a difficult but important question. Mammals can almost certainly feel pains and pleasures, but what about birds, fish, crustaceans, insects? And looking toward the future, we can ask, what about robots, brain emulations, artificial minds of various kinds? Okay, so we can say that creatures with moral standing merit our concern. Their interests must be included in our ideal moral calculations, which is not to say they can't be overridden by the interests of other creatures, but they have to at least be included. Um, or equivalently, we could say a creature has moral standing if and only if it possesses some sort of intrinsic moral worth. Valenced experiences are those experiences that take on a positive or negative affect, so paradigmatically pains and pleasures our valenced experiences. And it's generally thought that the capacity for valenced experience is sufficient for moral standing. Now, the capacity for valenced experience may not be a necessary condition for moral standing. So some philosophers think that agency in the sense of a belief, desire, intention, mental architecture is also sufficient for moral standing. And that sort of agency can conceivably come apart from the capacity for valence experience, especially if we're considering artificial intelligence. But for now, I'm going to set that possibility aside. So it's important to determine which creatures have moral standing for two reasons. Uh, one, humans affect a phylogenetically very diverse group of animals. And two, the number of affected animals in these groups differs dramatically. So very quickly, humans uh, farm uh, a bunch of different types of animals, including cows, pigs, rabbits, chickens, geese, turtles, frogs, carp, 
catfish, milkfish, trout, shrimp, crabs, crayfish, honeybees, crickets, mealworms, silkworms, snails, and many others, actually. So by my count, humans directly exploit at least 51 taxonomic families of animals across 33 orders, 13 classes, and six phyla. And of course, if you're including wild animals indirectly affected by humans, uh, that increases the diversity considerably. Uh, importantly, uh, the animals that humans use in greatest numbers and the animals who live in the wild in greatest numbers tend to be rather phylogenetically distant from humans, which makes the, uh, this question of moral standing all the more urgent. Okay, so different sorts of animals are exploited in different numbers. In general, we can say that birds are exploited in greater numbers than mammals, fish are exploited in greater numbers than birds, insects are exploited in greater numbers than fish. Okay, so by my count, uh, humans exploit about 265 bees per chicken and about 12,000 bees per pig. So we're talking about very dramatic differences in the number of animals that are exploited in these uh, different groups. Okay, so look, your credences in the moral standing of different types of animals will help determine which cause areas and which interventions within those causes you think are most important. So for example, if you think it's likely that the capacity for valence experience is restricted to mammals, then human welfare is probably more important than animal welfare, keeping a few things uh, equal for comparison. But if it's likely that birds and fish also have moral standing, then we're going to want to make sure that we prioritize animal welfare alongside human welfare. And if the capacity for valence experience extends to crustaceans and insects, then the good we can do by helping non-human animals may vastly exceed the good we can do by helping humans. And looking towards the future, if certain developments look likely to generate digital minds that have moral standing, that may affect either positively or negatively how we view those developments. Okay, so how can we make progress on what is admittedly a very, very difficult problem? Well, to get a better handle on which animals have moral standing, uh, we need to understand how the capacity for valence experience might manifest itself, both behaviorally and biologically. So that is going to be some combination of philosophical inquiry and uh, empirical inquiry. And then we also just need better empirical data on the actual behaviors and biology of different sorts of animals. And this is especially pressing when it comes to invertebrates, uh, which are understudied compared to vertebrates. Even though they make up the vast majority of both animal species and individual animals, vertebrates uh, tend to get far more attention than invertebrates. So last year, Rethink Priorities, where I work, selected 53 features that we thought were potentially indicative of the capacity for valence experience. And we examined the degree to which those features were exhibited in 18 representative taxa. And then we compiled all of that data into one uh, giant table. And it looks a little bit like this. So along the top there, you can see um, a few of the different types of animals that we studied. And along the left-hand side, um, a few of the features that we studied. And then each one of these cells that has a number in it links to uh, both citations in the empirical literature 
and our reasoning for why we think that those uh, studies indicate the answer that we gave uh, for each cell. There's something like a thousand citations attached to this table. And then you can scroll over to see um, more animals and actually some non-animal organisms uh, like uh, plants, uh, just for comparison. Uh, you can also filter this table by animal and by type of feature. If you scroll down, you can see many more features on this table. So for example, uh, one thing we studied was which animals are capable of exhibiting anhedonia-like behavior. So anhedonia is a loss of interest in activities previously found to be rewarding, and it's a common symptom of depression in humans. So it turns out that even fruit flies can exhibit uh, anhedonia-like behavior in the right conditions. So if you expose the flies to aversive, uncontrollable vibrations, basically shake them several times a day uh, over the course of several days, um, they, they start to show reductions in various voluntary behaviors, although their reflexive behavior, importantly, remains unchanged. And in particular, the shaken flies consume much less glycerol, which is commonly used as a reward in fruit fly studies, than non-shaken control flies, uh, which suggests that the shaken flies have actually lost their taste for sugar, which they previously found rewarding. Uh, so interesting stuff like that. Okay, but look, even if we definitively determine which animals have moral standing, that actually doesn't solve the problem because we also need to figure out how much different animals are worth in comparison. So these questions of moral weight, we could call them, are actually, I think, even more difficult to adjudicate than questions of moral standing. Um, I've actually spent the, uh, the majority of 2020 uh, researching this topic and trying to figure out what the best methodology for making progress in this area is. And uh, you're invited to visit our website to see the fruits of this labor, although it's very much in progress. Um, all right, so how could you conceivably contribute to this project, which is going to take uh, a very, very long time to solve to anyone's satisfaction? Although, of course, we'll never be certain probably about uh, our answers in this area. Well, look, if you're interested in helping now, uh, I actually have a list of volunteer opportunities, um, which could be completed by anyone with um, you know, good general purpose research skills. So please, after the talk, uh, get in touch with me either via Slack or email uh, if you're interested in helping. Um, but actually, I think a better use of your time is probably going to be spent on developing the sorts of skills that you'll need to address these issues later in your career. So what do I have in mind? Well, a good researcher in this area will possess a unique combination of philosophical and scientific expertise. So you might combine a background in philosophy of mind, say, with a background in evolutionary biology or comparative cognition or neuroethology. Um, and as you can imagine, this sort of combination of expertise is relatively rare. So if you're in a position to steer your studies to acquire that sort of expertise, um, you'd be very well poised to study these sorts of questions and to help uh, the community make progress. And the ideal researcher would also possess excellent social skills. So no one can be an expert in it. And everything uh, in this sort of research inevitably 
cuts across disciplines and involves collaborating with experts across many different fields. Okay, so the take-home message here is that determining which creatures matter and to what extent could have a big impact on how large grant makers and individual researchers and the community as a whole decides to allocate resources across causes and interventions. And by getting clearer on what we should think about which animals have moral standing to which and to what degree, we can really improve the efficiency with which we allocate resources, potentially increasing the amount of good that we do. So thanks so much for your time and listening. Please get in touch. Thank you for that talk, Jason. So I would love to go ahead and, and jump into some questions. Uh, you mentioned that a good researcher in this area will have a combination of philosophical and scientific expertise. How do you recommend that people go about becoming competent in both of these areas? I know, of course, you have a PhD in philosophy, so you may have some bias here, but I'm curious whether you think that formally studying philosophy and then trying to tool up independently in the relevant science is necessarily better or worse than doing the opposite. So formally studying science and then trying to tool up independently in the relevant philosophy, or, or maybe it's just a matter of a personal fit. Yeah, great. Thanks, Sophia. That's a great question. Um, so I think what we need is collaboration coming from both sides. So we need both philosophers who are empirically minded and scientists who are philosophically minded. And we need that because we want um, to be able to tap like a broad um, range of, of expertise. So if you're a philosopher, then you're going to know other philosophers who are doing interesting work that might be relevant. And if you're um, an evolutionary biologist, say, you're going to know other evolutionary biologists who are doing interesting work. And um, in order to make progress in, on these sorts of very difficult questions, we're going to have to be able to you know, bring these sorts of people together um, in order to get both um, the like empirical data that we need and um, the like philosophical clarity that we need uh, to hopefully uh, reduce our key uncertainties. Yeah, fantastic. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So uh, another question is, I, I wanted to sort of share this, this impression I have. Um, I think that even for those of us who have already spent years of our careers thinking about animal sentience and the moral value of animal lives, it can still feel a bit almost impossible to tackle these types of questions in a concrete way, uh, especially in a research context. So I'm curious what convinces you or makes you optimistic that, that this is tractable, that we can find answers to questions about animals that we have such limited capacity to intuitively understand. And, and I suppose I'll, I'll sort of mention that I'm specifically thinking about bees because of that dramatic graphic that you showed. So what do you think it's possible for us to learn about, say, bees' capacity for valence experience uh, over the next few decades, perhaps? And how much do you think that new information could shift our, our moral views? Yeah, good. So that's another uh, tough question. But, you know, so we don't need certainty with regards to these questions. Um, you know, that's too high a bar. Um, but I do think that we can get clearer, at least on the sorts of things that um, would affect our decisions. 
So it might be the case that we can't say with much confidence what the like um, rational probability, given the evidence, that honeybees are sentient is. But maybe what we can say is like, look, we know that honeybees are, you know, as likely to be sentient as crustaceans. Or, um, and if that's the case, then we can start um, making some decisions about how to prioritize resources going to different species. And maybe we'll be able to say things like, we know that cephalopods are um, much more likely to be sentient than crustaceans. Um, maybe we can say some things about mammals versus birds. And so we can start to sort of chip away at the uncertainty by making these comparisons, even if getting to like the, the absolute numbers is, is very difficult. Um, I am somewhat optimistic that we can make progress um, on these questions. Um, I think that they're relatively neglected, um, certainly in the empirical literature, but also um, on the philosophical side as well. And so um, given how important they are, I think at the very least we shouldn't give up yet without uh, making a really concerted effort to try to get clearer on some of these questions. Right, right, sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So can you talk a little bit about some of the animal-related projects that you've worked on at Rethink Priorities and maybe some that your colleagues have worked on as well, just to sort of give the audience uh, an idea of the scope of questions that exist in this space? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, well, so there are like different types of questions that we pursue at Rethink Priorities. Um, so some of them are these more speculative questions about um, which animals are sentient. Uh, one thing that I've been working on a lot in 2020 is um, how to go about figuring out differences in capacity for welfare and moral status across animals with the goal ultimately um, to like find a methodology such that we can use that methodology to compare how we ought to prioritize welfare gains to one species versus welfare gains to a, um, a different, perhaps phylogenetically uh, distant species. Uh, but we also do like plenty of just like more straightforward descriptive work. So um, my colleague, uh, Daniela Waldhorn, uh, put together a really, really nice report on snail farming. Um, uh, which, as you can imagine, is like a very neglected area in um, the animal advocacy space. Um, I put together a report on managed honeybee welfare. Um, Daniela is now working on a nice report about um, shrimp welfare and about shrimp farming and how we can um, possibly improve the lives of uh, farmed shrimp. Um, and so when we put together these types of reports, um, you know, we're certainly not certain that shrimp or snails or honeybees are sentient, uh, but the numbers involved are huge and these areas are very neglected. And so we're just taking the like classic EA importance neglectedness tractability framework to these problems and, and saying, you know, basically, if we don't talk about these issues, no one's going to. Um, and so we're excited to do some of this research. That's great. Yeah, fantastic. So I, I think one relevant question here for someone looking to go into this type of work is how specialized to get. Uh, so for example, you mentioned both evolutionary biology, which I take to be a fairly broad field, and then also neuroethology, which I believe is, is more niche. So do you have a view on how people should go about selecting a scientific specialty, or maybe how to determine what will be the most helpful to the field overall? Uh, or maybe, you know, it just depends on, on personal fit. And 
I'm, I'm also interested, uh, similarly for philosophy, you mentioned philosophy of mind, which is relevant in obvious ways, uh, but are there other focuses within philosophy that you expect would be really useful here? Yeah, so I think a lot of this is just going to be determined, as you say, by personal fit. Um, so there are lots of different areas of expertise that we need uh, to make progress in these areas. And so um, if you're a student and you're interested in making progress on these sorts of questions, what I'd first and foremost say is just like follow your own interests, but keep an eye to like how you could put those interests to good use. So if you're really interested in some you know particular aspect of biology, um, like by all means, like pursue specialization in that area of biology, but also try to read up on the side um, about philosophy of mind or epistemology or, or what might might help you there. Um, if you're really interested in philosophy, by all means, you know, uh, go in depth with your philosophical research, but just try to stay up to date on the like relevant scientific literature as well. And um, as I mentioned in the talk, I think what's going to be really helpful is forging collaboration across disciplines. And so when you have the opportunity to conduct interdisciplinary research, definitely take it. When you can like make relationships with people working in fields outside of your own, take advantage of those opportunities. Um, because you know no one is going to be able to have all of the relevant expertise uh, him or herself. Um, it's, it, this is like necessarily going to be a, a community-wide research project. Right. Right. That's great to hear. I mean, I think it's it's somewhat obvious, but it's also somewhat uh, reassuring, you know, to hear as I think for students kind of starting out and feeling like they want to tackle everything and, and have to sort of tool up in every arena. So I think that's very useful. Um, we only have time for one more quick question, uh, but I, I just wanted to, to quickly ask, I think this is a super interesting one. Um, is there a principled and non-arbitrary approach to weight something like brain complexity or size across species uh, for comparing valence? Yeah, great. So that's a perfect question to answer in less than a minute. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, um, the answer is it's complicated. Um, and uh, I've actually been uh, working on uh, a big report on differences in the intensity of valence experience across species, uh, which is uh, slated to come out either next week or, or the week after. So I encourage you to consult that. Um, the very short, uh, unfairly short answer is that... Um, there aren't, as of yet, like super good reasons to think that um, that like brain complexity is going to be a really good indicator of um, the capacity for valence experience. Okay, but yeah, I mean, the, yeah, there, there's obviously much, much more to say about that question. Sure, but that that's still useful. Yeah, thank you. Great. Okay, so uh, that's about all we have time for here. Thank you for coming. <laughs>